Praise the Lord. Amen. So good to see everyone here this morning. It's an awful day out today, isn't it? No, of course it's not. You know, every time it rains, especially uh, when we were growing up in, not growing up, when we were living in southwestern Minnesota, a lot of farmers there, a lot of of corn, a lot of soybeans. Every time it would rain, we would always hear, oh, we desperately need the rain. We could have a foot and a half of rain water standing up in the street, but we desperately need the rain. <laughs> I got so sick of rain and people, people saying that we needed the rain, but we do need the rain, but we need the sun too. I like the rain. I like what it does, but boy, I love the sun. Amen. Let's all stand. Into every life a little rain must fall. Amen. Because it's necessary. Praise God. But we are here today, gathered together in the presence of Almighty God. Doesn't matter if it's a hurricane outside. Doesn't matter if it's 373 below zero. Or 500 above zero. We are in the presence of God, and that's all we need. Amen. That's how we were designed. Praise God. So we're going to go before Him this morning. We're going to trust in Him that His will is going to be accomplished. Amen. As the people of God, that's all we should ever want. It's His will to be done in our lives. That's what we should be desiring. That's what we should be seeking after is the will of God. We trust in Him. We know that His ways are the best ways. We know that His decisions are always the best for us. Amen. Even if we don't understand it at the time, even if it's contrary to what we're wanting in the moment, we know that His plan, His will, His desires are the best. Praise God. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for You. We're so thankful for Your so great salvation and the ministration of Your Spirit in this place. I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name that Your name would be lifted up here this morning. That Your name would be magnified, worshipped, and glorified today. That all hearts in this place, all hearts joining us online would seek Your face, would seek to enter into the presence of God and receive of You all that You have for us today. Help us, Lord Jesus, to submit ourselves to You, to Your plan for our lives. Let Your name be magnified in this place. Let Your name be glorified here this morning. All these things we ask in Jesus' name. Praise God. Praise God. We exalt You. We worship and we praise You today. Hallelujah, Jesus. Hallelujah, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Amen. So today we are going to finish our teaching, our historical exploration of the idea of the Trinity, the idea of oneness. Amen. Our scripture text for this particular portion is Colossians 2.9, which says, For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Referring to Jesus Christ. Amen. 
So we left off with uh, ending in the 15th century last week. So today we're going to pick up in the 16th century, A.D. 1500 to A.D. 1600. By the time we get to this point in our history, we find that people are, have become very superstitious. And by superstitious, I mean that they were very spiritual people, but they weren't spiritual based in knowledge or wisdom. They were, they were spiritual based in superstition. They, they believed that most all natural phenomenon was caused by spirits. Good spirits, evil spirits, uh, probably depending on how it affected them that day. But uh, the people were very superstitious. The people were very ignorant. And by that I mean they were unlearned. They, they didn't know typically how to read or write. Uh, they never went to school. They were uneducated. They, the education they received came from mass, came from the priest. And uh, probably by now we have some idea what they were receiving from the priest. Nothing very scriptural. Uh, so, that's the, that's the overall background we find ourselves in. At the same time, we find uh, that we are in the height of the, the Renaissance. And the Renaissance is, is characterized by a lot of things, but for our purposes this morning, in relating to the history of, of the Trinity, uh, the Renaissance emphasized the human potential. And what I mean by that is, uh, up until this point, the Catholic Church was, well, some might say even today, is a religion of guilt. And uh, I don't know, I wasn't born or raised Catholic. I have known Catholics, but uh, I've heard that said by many Catholics, ex-Catholics, nominal Catholics, uh, that it is a religion of guilt. And they kind of hold you under their thumb by telling you that if you don't stay here, if you don't do what you're told, if you don't submit yourself to the Pope and to the authority of the church, that you're going to hell. And so, uh, the emphasis was how bad people were. The emphasis was on how close you were to absolute destruction every moment of the day. And uh, the Renaissance came and, and questioned that. It caused people to see that, that there's some potential for good there. And it caused individuals to begin to look critically at the abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. Now, unfortunately, fortunately, it got to that point, but unfortunately, humanism's main goal, uh, at least in 16th century Europe, was not the complete reformation uh, of the church to a scriptural foundation again, but it was more looking for an inner reformation of the Roman Catholic Church, to abolish the greatest of the abuses of the Catholic Church, maybe a minor restructuring of the institution, without touching its foundational principles. Uh, for the most part, they had no desire to return to biblical authority or biblical Christianity. And also, because their foundation was human philosophy, a revival of Greek philosophy primarily, and not Scripture, they were able to arrive at some correct conclusions, but they were never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Up until this time, for example, people believed they were guilty, would always be guilty, 
and stand in judgment of an angry God. Now they believe that as human beings they had good qualities and a potential for greatness. Now, this is true to an extent. This is true in Jesus Christ. Okay? They did have some truth there. Without God, we are in danger of hellfire. Without God, we do stand every moment of every day on the precipice of destruction. But with God, that is removed. With God, through Jesus Christ, we can stand before Him justified. We'll come to that knowledge here in a little bit. They were able to recognize that the church was abusing their authority. However, they weren't really interested in true and full reform. They just wanted to bring the church in line with what they perceived now to be good and right in their own eyes. Also during this time, we find the introduction of the printing press. Johannes Gutenberg used his printing press in 1456 to print, using movable type, a copy of the Bible. Now before this, if you had a book or even a few books, I mean, that was a significant show of wealth. And if you could read those books, wow, I mean, you are an amazing person. An educated man that, that knows how to read and that has these collection of books. Books were fairly rare. And they were pretty expensive because they were hard to come by. They were hand copied by scribes uh, up until this point. After the introduction of the printing press, books became a whole lot cheaper to make. And they became more prolific. So you could obtain them a lot easier. This helped spread new ideas quickly and broadly. An important point for our discussion today. Martin Luther was born on November 10, 1483. His father Hans was a peasant, but he became rich in copper mining and so was able to give young Martin a proper education. So Martin Luther eventually graduated from Erfurt University in 1501. At this point, he started to become extremely despondent. He became more and more aware of his own sinfulness and his inability to do anything about it. So eventually, he decided to become a monk. That was the best he knew to do is to become a monk, live a strict, aesthetic life, and uh, hopefully that would atone for his great sinfulness. Well, uh, the more he tried as a monk, the more despondent he became. Uh, but his talents, his abilities, his, his fervency didn't go unnoticed. He was made a teacher there at the monastery. And at that point, he started studying the Scriptures. And he came up upon a revelation. Uh, he didn't receive this revelation from the Catholic synods. He didn't receive it from Greek philosophy. Uh, he received it right from the Scriptures. Uh, he found Romans chapter 1 and verse 17. It says, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, The just shall live by faith. And that was an epiphany moment for 
Mr. Martin Luther. He understood from Scripture from this point on that it was faith in God alone that man could find salvation. Not in penance, not in works, not in submission to a pope or to papal authority, not uh, because of obedience to the sacraments, but from God alone. Shortly after this, a Dominican friar was commissioned by the Pope by the name of John Tetzel to sell indulgences to raise money for the building of St. Peter's Church in Rome. This John Tetzel was famous for this saying. He would go around saying this to uh, drum up uh, interest. As soon as coin and coffer rings... The soul from purgatory springs. Amen. That's easy enough, isn't it? So Martin Luther was quite fed up with this. He was disgusted by the idea of indulgences. And so he wrote his 95 Theses in 1517, proposing an academic discussion of the practice of indulgences. He wanted to meet with church officials and discuss with them why these were wrong. So in other words, Martin Luther's intent pretty much the whole time was to reform the Catholic Church. It was never to break away and form the Lutheran Church. He never had that intention. Because up until this point, of course, the idea of denominations was it was like rain before the flood. It had never happened. We've never seen that. No one understood what a denomination was. There were no denominations. There was one church. And so, his idea was to reform the church. That's all there was. Denominations didn't come until, well, shortly after. He never got a response from the church, but because of this, his fame spread like wildfire. This man dared stand up to the institution that was at present persecuting, torturing, and killing millions of people as heretics. The institution was going strong at this point. The institution who held kings and governments in their sway. This man was standing up to the Catholic Church. He attended the Diet of Worms, it's spelled diet, but I'm pretty sure it's pronounced Diet, of Worms in 1521. It was otherwise uneventful except for the fact that he was there. Pope Leo X and the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V was there, and he asked them, he asked uh, Martin Luther to renounce his writings. According to the documents of the time, Martin Luther asked for a day to think about it. They gave it to him. And the next day, Martin Luther said that he would gladly renounce his writings if they could demonstrate his error from the Bible. As long as you can demonstrate from Scripture that I'm wrong, I'll renounce it. Well, (laughs) they couldn't. So they threatened judgment from a convened church council. Now remember, the councils were considered infallible. They were considered on equal authority with Scripture. 
Luther said that he could demonstrate church councils had been wrong in the past. Therefore, they can't be infallible. Well, that caused a lot of confusion in the meeting. In the confusion that followed that statement, uh, the Holy Roman Emperor left the room. Although Martin Luther uh, came to this revelation of justification by faith, uh, he was by no means a perfect man. He was very antagonistic against Jews and against anti-Trinitarian Christians. But his great contribution to all of this was that he recognized only the authority of Scripture to determine doctrine. All right, moving along to a man by the name of Michael Servetus. He was born in Spain in the fall of 1511. While traveling as the secretary to the royal chaplain, he became interested in the Bible and began to study it. Servetus was concerned with the problems encountered with the conversion of the Jews and the Moors and discovered that the difficulty stemmed from the Catholic Church's requirement of a belief in the Trinity. So he went to study this out, and he discovered something. To his great delight, there was no substantiation for a belief in the Trinity anywhere in the New Testament. Now, as we, as we look at these people who receive, uh, in various points in history, the revelation of the oneness of God, we've got to understand, you know, People today will tell, well, you know, that's what you were born and raised in. That's what, that's, that's what you were taught your whole life. But if you just look at Scriptures, you'd see. Well, that's exactly what these people are doing. They were born and raised and taught the exact opposite. The Trinity. But it seems like every time they go to Scripture and start researching it, Every time they look to the Bible and start looking at, at the Scriptures, they all come to the same conclusion, don't they? That there is no substantiation for a Trinitarian belief. He concluded that the formulation of this doctrine, the, the doctrine of the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea, which was published in AD 325, constituted the fall of Christianity. He published his first work called On the Errors of the Trinity in 1531. That's a pretty provocative title, considering the, the climate of the day. The Errors of the Trinity. For a time, he carried on a correspondence with a man by the name of John Calvin. Anyone ever hear of him? Yep, we'll hear a little bit more about him later. Their views differed greatly, and after a time, the correspondence was cut off by Mr. Calvin. In fact, Calvin told Jean Frelion, the man who channeled the correspondence between Servetus and Calvin, that if Servetus ever came to Geneva, where he was, he wouldn't leave Geneva alive. That was Mr. Calvin. In 1553, Calvin put together his work, I'm sorry, uh, Servetus, put together his work, The Restitution of Christianity, which contained his views of the Godhead, which were very specifically anti-Trinitarian. He was discovered as the author of the work and was arrested by the Inquisition. 
The Inquisition initially had insufficient evidence to move forward, but that was corrected later because there was evidence provided by Mr. John Calvin. Servetus somehow managed to escape before they could move any further against him, however, and he later ends up in Geneva. I don't know why, but he went to Geneva, where he was recognized and arrested. He was put to trial, and uh, the council that tried Servetus was encouraged by John Calvin uh, to give him the death penalty. He was convicted and sentenced to burn at the stake. The reasons given were that, one, he did not believe in the Trinity, and two, he did not believe in infant baptism. The trial, as an aside, demonstrates Calvin's extreme intolerance against anyone that disagreed with his doctrinal stances. We're going to find that about a few of these people. Uh, these reformers. They were definitely men of their day. And I would like to stand up here and pass judgment on all of them. But I wasn't, a, I wasn't part of that period of time. Uh, that, it was a different time. It definitely wasn't scriptural. But at the same time, Product of the area you're in. 17th century, AD 16 to AD 1700, we encounter a man by the name of Thomas Emlyn. He was born at Stamford in Lincolnshire on May 27, 1663. He was an associate pastor in a large Protestant church in Dublin when he was called into question about his beliefs about the Godhead by one of his parishioners. Mr. Emlyn was happy to answer the question. Uh, stating that he denied the doctrine of the Trinity. And so he was called before the ministers of his area to answer questions about his doctrine. In Robert Wallace's work called Anti-Trinitarian Biography, he says this about Mr. Emlyn. Mr. Emlyn and the Dublin ministers were agreed, as he says, that God is but one infinite, necessary, perfect, and supreme being or spirit, with one understanding and will, who is the sole object of divine worship, and that he was in an ineffable manner united to the man Christ Jesus, dwelling and operating in him by a fixed and perpetual influence as the governing principle. We'll go over all of this later. But he differed from them as to the manner of this union. He conceived it to be more for the honor of Jesus Christ to suppose that the deity in its full conception, was united to him than to suppose it only a portion of God, or of God, partially considered. And he held this to be the plain doctrine of Scripture, which says in Colossians 2.9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And in John 14.10, Believest thou not that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Unquote. I put this quote in here to uh, emphasize a fact that I've discovered when talking with Trinitarians, and maybe you've discovered the same thing. There's not really a whole lot of difference between what we believe, them and us. They're almost oneness people themselves. Uh, 
people's problems primarily is they're taught Trinity, so that's what I believe. And I'm just speaking for myself. When I was a Lutheran Trinitarian, uh, I knew the concept of the Trinity. We sung about it a lot. Uh, and, but I didn't understand it. I, I didn't. And when I questioned my pastor on that and a few other things, well, that's something you just need to accept by faith. <clears throat> I didn't have enough faith, I guess. And that wasn't a satisfactory answer for me. And so, so I went looking for more. Any case, um, I don't think I don't think the average Trinitarian believer and the oneness believer are. I don't. I think we're almost there. I think they're almost oneness people. They they just they just need some understanding. That's all. By the middle of the 17th century, anti-Trinitarianism was widespread in England. In 1646, Reverend Thomas Edwards printed a list of heresies present in England. Among that list was found these, and this is also from Wallace's work. Number 24, that in the unity of the Godhead there is not a trinity of persons, and that the doctrine of the trinity is a popish tradition and a doctrine of Rome. Number 25, that there are not three distinct persons in the divine essence, but only three offices, and that the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost are not persons, but offices. Those were two of the uh, lists of heresies that were present in England. Reverend Edwards received a lot of responses objecting to this work and stating a belief in oneness. I don't have time to list all of them, but there were several prominent ministers of the time that, that wrote and published works criticizing and rejecting his conclusions. Maybe you've heard of a man by the name of William Penn. This is also from Wallace's work. And I quote, William Penn attacked the notion of three persons in one God and came out at last with a species of Sibelianism. And it is certain, whatever may be said or written, to the contrary by the leaders of the sect in our times, that Isaac Pennington, John Crook, and the early Quakers generally, not accepting even Robert Barclay himself, I don't know any of those names, uh, but they were Quakers, did not believe in the Anastasian doctrine of the Trinity. In other words, Mr. Penn was a oneness believer. William Penn had a conflict with a Presbyterian minister named Thomas Vincent because two of Reverend Vincent's congregation had been converted and he was very upset. Penn and Whitehead, a leading Quaker of the day, pushed for a debate with Vincent. They eventually agreed, and during the debate, Vincent asked them if the Quakers believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. Whitehead responded, and Penn agreed, by saying that the Scripture made no such statement. After the inefficacy of this meeting, a second was agreed to, which also came to very little. Whitehead eventually grew tired of it and decided he wasn't going to pursue it any farther. But Mr. Penn was not willing to leave the matter be, and so he published a tract called The Sandy Foundation Shaken. In this tract, Penn stated very plainly his denial of the Trinity. This earned him a place in the Tower of London, where he was kept under close confinement without being allowed visitations from friends. After he had been there a while, 
A servant was allowed to bring him word that the Bishop of London, Dr. Hensman, had resolved that Penn should publicly recant or spend the rest of his life in prison. This is Penn's recorded response, and I quote, All is well. I wish they had told me so before, since expecting of a release put a stop to some business. Thou mayest tell my father, who I know will ask thee these words, that my prison shall be my grave, before I will budge a jot. For I owe my conscience to no mortal man. I have no need to fear. God will make amends for all. They are mistaken in me. I value not their threats nor resolutions, for they shall know I can weary out their malice and peevishness. And in me shall they all behold a resolution above fear, conscience above cruelty, and a baffle put to all their designs by the spirit of patience, the companion of all the tribulated flock of the blessed Jesus, who is the author and finisher of the faith that overcomes the world, yea, death and hell too. Neither great nor good things were ever attained without loss and hardships. That he would reap and not labor must faint with the wind and perish in disappointments. But an hair of my head shall not fall without the providence of my Father that is over all. Amen to that. Of course, he later uh, goes to the colonies. We understand all of that. He doesn't die there. But Mr. William Penn was a oneness believer. 18th and 19th centuries, A.D. 1700 to A.D. 1900. During this time, the Enlightenment was in full swing. Those dates seem wrong. Anyway, during this time, the Enlightenment was in full swing, and we see the development of deism. Deism, however you'd like to pronounce it. This was prominent in a lot of our founding fathers in the early United States. The belief that there is a God, but He is a very impersonal one, and he has basically left the stage. He is undiscoverable. He, is, he does not intervene in the affairs of men. Uh, there are certainly no miraculous events going on today. The Enlightenment focused on man. And since God is gone and the inherent potential of man is present, we can bring utopia to pass all by ourselves. And that was a very prominent belief of this era. Utopia was coming, things were getting better, people were getting better, uh, laws were evolving, we were becoming more egalitarian all the time. And eventually, this would lead to heaven on earth. This would lead to a utopia brought about by the, the designs and plans of men. Originally, the Enlightenment, humanism, we're attacking the superstitious elements of Roman Catholicism. But now it was finding fault with every supernatural reference found in Scripture. Because if the Bible is wrong in one area, logic asserts, couldn't it be wrong in other areas? And I would agree with that statement. If it could be wrong, if it is wrong in one area, it could be wrong in every area. So the authority of Scripture was undermined. It was just another book among a lot of good books. We also see the rise, paradoxically, well, not paradoxically, but kind of a branch. There were two branches going on at this time. A move toward humanism and a move toward evangelicalism. 
We see also during this period George Whitfield, John and Charles Wesley preaching powerful open-air revivals and many receiving conversionary experiences. A missionary fervor was gripping the churches during this time and many people felt a need to reach the heathen with the gospel, people who had not yet heard of Jesus Christ. Many people during this time were oneness believers. Many New England preachers were considered Sibelinists, including a man by the name of Henry Ward Beecher. I did a little research on Mr. Beecher. He was an interesting fellow. Uh, he got some stuff right. But again, like a lot of people, he got some stuff wrong too. Amen. Anyway, he got this right. A Presbyterian minister named John Miller wrote a book entitled, Is God a Trinity?, in which he ascribes to Jesus Christ the fullness of deity. In New England, I don't know if we're going to have time to go through all that, but uh, in New England, there were a lot of tracts, a lot of published works uh, during this period of time describing the fact that uh, the unity of God is a unity of person as well as of nature. Uh, that God being unipersonal cannot be three persons any more than a man could be three persons. Um, Dr. Nathaniel Emmons gave prominence to the theory of official subordination. <clears throat> and uh, one author, uh, this Mr. Payne, from which I'm getting these, these references, he says that this assertion was the Sibelinist lump that would leaven the whole, eventually. From that statement, Mr. Payne moves to Moses Stewart and Horace Bushnell. Mr. Bushnell published a work entitled, God in Christ. This work is a fascinating summary of the development of oneness doctrine in New England during the 18th and 19th century. Okay, so, anyway, long story short. A lot of people were re-examining the doctrine of the Trinity in light of Scripture, in light of what the Bible had to say about it. And when, when all you look at is Scripture, and you don't have the benefit of all of the councils, the synods, the authority of the, the Pope, the Catholic Church, man's philosophies, the need to stabilize governments, we clearly see God is revealing Himself to us as one God. Moving to the 20th century. Here we're introduced to a man by the name of Charles Fox Parnham. If you know anything about the Azusa Street revivals, this name is familiar to you. He was an independent holiness preacher he founded a small Bible school in Topeka, Kansas called Bethel Bible College on October 15, 1900. On January 1, 1901, he was conducting a prayer meeting with some of his students when a woman by the name of Agnes Oseman, one of his students, asked Parnham to lay his hands on her that she might receive the Holy Ghost. Well, she did. On January 3rd, Parham, his wife, and 12 ministerial students all received the baptism of the Holy Ghost. He later called this new group the Apostolic Faith Movement. In 1903, a woman who was attending one of his uh, revivals was instantly healed of a blinding eye disease 
and was invited by this woman to preach in Galena, Kansas. He went, preached his revival. In that revival, more than 800 people were baptized in water. Many hundreds received the Holy Ghost, and at least 1,000 people testified that they were healed. One of the converts during that revival was a man by the name of Howard Goss. Some of you will know that name. At the time, he was an atheist, a self-described heathen. He later became one of the founders of the Assemblies of God and later still the first general superintendent of the United Pentecostal Church. In 1905, Parham received invitation to hold revivals in Orchid, Texas. God gave him miraculous results there. So miraculous and so overwhelming was the response there that he opened a short-term Bible school in Houston. One of the students Parham had in that college in Houston was a man by the name of William Joseph Seymour, a black holiness minister. Mr. William Seymour later received an invitation to pastor a small holiness church in Los Angeles, California. When he got there, they disagreed with Mr. Seymour's doctrine and locked the church. I'm glad you guys didn't do that to me. <laughs> Thank you. But later, he and several people started holding services in an old rented two-story building on Azusa Street in downtown Los Angeles. Their first service there was held on April 15, 1906. After that, they had services daily, 24 hours a day for a period of three years until 1909. Uh, and again, time doesn't uh, permit me to describe what happened during those three years. You can read about it. Uh, there's some YouTube videos on it. Highly recommend them. Amazing. Amazing period of time. One of the converts of the Azusa Street Revivals for our purposes this morning was a man by the name of William Durham. William Durham was a holiness preacher in Chicago. He had an assistant by the... Uh, by the, a man by the name of Frank J. Ewart. <clears throat> there was also a man, uh, an immigrant from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, who received the Holy Ghost there in Chicago in 1908. In 1910, this man was ordained by William Durham. Uh, his name was Andrew D. Urson. Brother Urson began to meditate on this question. Why did the apostles always baptize in the name of Jesus in the book of Acts when Jesus himself had instructed them to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost? He concluded this, and I quote, The blessed Lord showed me then and there that, quote, the Lord Jesus Christ is the, proper, the one proper name of God for this gospel dispensation, because in Him, Jesus Christ our Lord, all the fullness of the Godhead dwelt. And to him all power in heaven and earth was given, that repentance and remission of sins should be preached everywhere in Jesus' name only. Brother Urson called this new understanding, quote, a wonderful revelation of the triunity in Christ, unquote, and, quote, a blessed revelation of Christ's absolute deity, unquote. All right. Which brings us to the Pentecostal movement. 
of the early 20th century. 21st century. That's so confusing. No, 20th century. Yeah, I'm right. I'm right and I'm wrong. Mr. Fred Foster, that should be a familiar name as well, wrote a book called Think It Not Strange. I'm going to quote some parts of that book here. Uh, I quote, McLean described it thus, In the same year, 1914, when the Assemblies of God organization was set up, Frank J. Ewart of Los Angeles, California, through much seeking God in prayer, had revealed to him through the Word of God a great truth concerning the plan of salvation, that God was in His Son Jesus reconciling the world unto Himself, 2 Corinthians 5.19, and that the simple plan of salvation had been plainly laid out by the Apostle Peter in Acts 2.38. Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. It was revealed further that Jesus is the only door of salvation, Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Still further, it was revealed that all the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, dwelt in Him bodily, Colossians 2.9. Thus all the apostles, fully understanding the words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 28.19, which says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, baptized every candidate in the name of Jesus. He saw that the apostolic commandment is, in Colossians 3.17, And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Unquote. Pentecostal ministers who were converted to the oneness message began to publish this great truth. Again, I quote uh, Mr. Foster's work. Daniel C.O. Opperman was editor of the leading paper called The Blessed Truth, which did much to carry the truth around the world. Oliver F. Foss began publishing A Very Staunch Advocate and later merged it with The Blessed Truth. G.T. Haywood, an outstanding minister who stood high among all Pentecostal ministers and saints, published The Voice in the Wilderness. Haywood, a noted Bible teacher and pastor of one of the largest Pentecostal churches, published several books which were used of the Lord to persuade many. Leading ministers and saints put out other publications and thousands of tracts which convinced sincere people of Bible truths, causing many to be buried in the lovely name of Jesus and to receive the infilling of the Holy Ghost. Unquote. The Assemblies of God, after it had first formed, had twelve preachers in Louisiana. All twelve departed the Trinitarian faith. There, of course, arose opposition uh, from this group, from those who still held to a Trinitarian view of the Godhead. I quote Foster again. Those against the message began fighting it very severely. Great exertions were made to win back those who had gone into oneness. So the lineup was beginning to take shape. Those for and those against. The leaders began exerting great pressure to realign those who had gone into oneness and to keep others behind the Trinitarian teaching. They could very well see the strong possibility of the large majority of the organization going over to the oneness camp. In harmony with this thinking, one Trinitarian writer calling the oneness teaching Sabellian heresy said that, quote, it came within a hair's breadth of capturing the assemblies of God, unquote. Can you imagine 
They were this close to becoming oneness. But they pulled it out in the end. How sad is that? Amen. In St. Louis, on October the 1st through the 7th, 1916, a meeting was held of the Assemblies of God to formulate a new creed that would eliminate the preaching of the oneness message in their ranks. During this conference, uh, well, I quote Foster again, when the committee reported to the council, there was immediate opposition from the oneness section. The council was, had consisted entirely of Trinitarian proponents. There was immediate opposition from the oneness section. They hopefully wanted to stay with this group and would do all in their power to remain. They desperately endeavored to strike the strong Trinitarian ideas from these statements, but they in turn were met with the most offensive type of struggle. The die had been cast, and this naturally was against Goss, Haywood, Opperman, and cohorts. After this, the oneness preachers were basically left out standing in the cold. No organization to belong to. Uh, they couldn't stay with the Assemblies of God any longer, and so they left. But they began to organize themselves over a period of many years, many trials, several mergers. We come to September 1945, Keele Auditorium in downtown St. Louis where the Pentecostal Assemblies of Jesus Christ and the Pentecostal Church merged to become the United Pentecostal Church, which is today the largest oneness organization in the entire world. Amen. Proverbs 23.23 says this, Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. We can only find truth in one place, and that's Scripture. We cannot find truth in man's writings, except where it's derived from Scripture. There's all kinds of good parables and folk fables and, and all of those, you know, Grandma used to tell me this, and, and you know, that was, a, that was a good bit of wisdom. Most of those that are truly good are derived from Scripture in the first place. There is no truth except in Scripture. Man's wisdom, man's understanding of things cannot come to a knowledge of the truth. And when the Scriptures tell us to buy the truth and sell it not, that's not just a cool phrase. It means truth is going to cost you something. You're going to purchase it. Sometimes we purchase truth at a discount. And we appreciate that. Other times we purchase truth at great cost. At a great price. But the price is always worth it. The cost is always worth it. It goes on to say, sell it not. Don't get rid of it for any reason whatsoever. Whatever price the, the enemy gives you for that truth, 
is cheap. You're selling cheap. He can't give you what that truth is worth. He just can't. So buy the truth and sell it not. It doesn't matter what the price is of that truth. Buy it. Prominent holiness holiness leaders of the days following the Azusa Street revivals said this about the Pentecostal movement. That it was, quote, the last vomit of Satan. Emphatically not of God. Wicked and adulterous. Anti-Christian. Sensual and devilish. And other such sayings and phrases were used to describe our forefathers. The early Pentecostal preachers, the early Pentecostal workers and saints that went out and preached this message. Pentecostal workers, not preachers, just the workers. If I can say it like that, you know what I mean. Were threatened, beaten, shot at, tarred and feathered. They were pelted with rocks and with rotten fruit, vegetables and eggs. Tent ropes were slashed. Tents and buildings were set afire. I quote Howard Goss. He says this. He was the first general superintendent of the UPC. We could never be sure we were not going to be injured. Some workers were attacked. Some were beaten. Some had bones broken. Some were jailed. Some were made to leave town. Some were rotten egged. And some were shot at. We were stoned. But at least we were never sawn asunder. Church services were disturbed by roughnecks for many years. Tents, buildings, and sometimes residences were burned. Drinking water was poisoned. And windows were broken. We were sometimes threatened by angry mobs or by raging individuals when some member of their family had been converted. Often we had no protection. There were times when the police chose to close their eyes because we were the strangers while the city paid them a salary. Unquote. Interesting perspective from one of our early pioneers. What price were they paying for truth? They thought it worth it. I'll close with this. A man by the name of Robert Mapes Anderson. He's a non-Pentecostal historian and he wrote this work, Vision of the Disinherited, The Making of American Pentecostalism. He says this about the early Pentecostals, and I quote, These lived often in extreme poverty, going out with little or no money, seldom knowing where they would spend the night or how they would get their next meal, sleeping in barns, tents, and parks, or on the wooden benches of mission halls, and sometimes in jail. Bands of workers would pool their funds, buy a tent or rent a hall, and lived communally in the meeting place, subsisting at times on flour and water, or rice, or sardines and sausages. The Pentecostals found their chief asset in the spirit of sacrifice and the enormous drive of their leaders. Unquote. Amen. So in closing this morning, considering the history <coughs> excuse me, of the concept of the oneness of God, the idea that there are a Trinitarian, there's a Trinitarian idea revealed to us in Scripture. 
Once that was accepted in history, A.D. 325, from that point forward, that became the mainstream tenet of Christianity. The doctrine of the Trinity. And whenever anyone encountered Scripture, they would see that that is simply not true. It's not supported by Scripture. Some people, I have to imagine, just choked it down. Yeah, I see that Scripture says that, but I'm not going to say anything. I don't want to come up against the church. But others did. And they paid for it. They paid for it. I make mention of this fact for two reasons. One, we truly stand on the backs of giants. Not just in our recent history, but going all the way back. All the way back to the first century church. We stand on the backs of giants who paid a price, who paved the way for us here today. There are some sitting in this room who have sacrificed and gave and have paid the way for us. The next generation coming up behind them. We ought to be thankful for men and women who are willing to pay the price. My question though is this. Will the generation following me be thankful for my generation? Because my generation paid a price. I hope so. I truly hope so. The price is worth it. Truth has to be proclaimed. It has to be proclaimed. And it's only going to be proclaimed by you and by me. Whatever the cost, whatever the circumstances we find ourselves in because of it. We see here recorded in history, recent and way in the past. People thought it worthy. People thought it a good price to pay to declare truth. That they should lay down their lives. Truth is worth our lives. Figuratively and literally. Amen. I'm thankful for truth. I'm thankful that God has revealed to us that He is indeed one God. Next week, we're going to move from history. Some of you will be really sad about that. Maybe a few of you will be really happy about that. In any case, we're going to start looking at Scripture. And what does the Scriptures have to say? What, what were these people seeing that caused them to say, no, the Trinity is not supported in Scripture? What were they looking at? We're going to take a look at that next week, Lord willing. Let's all stand.